me, please. Turn to Romans chapter. You know what? You can turn to Revelation. What? Well, they start with the same first letter, right? They're not much different, are they? Revelation chapter 12, we will get there. What I'm going to do is we're going to, we're just preaching two verses this morning. And those two verses are shown They are shown um, on the overhead like four times. So if you want to turn to Romans 16, you can. Uh, but I'm going to uh, preach through Romans chapter 16 and verse. I must have the wrong verse there. Let me get. I'm sorry. I didn't realize. Romans chapter 16, verse 19 and 20, correct. That was the wrong verse for some reason. All right, for some reason, my, my uh, stuff put the wrong. Romans chapter 16, verses 19 through 20, the text says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Romans 16, verses 19 through 20. Last time we met, which was two weeks ago, Paul clearly explained how we are to treat false teachers. How do you remember that? We're to treat false teachers badly, if you remember. That's how we're to treat false teachers. Just as Jesus dealt with the religious much more pointedly than any other, we are also to treat the false teachers by turning away from them, ignoring them, confronting them to their face. Paul says in Galatians, let them be accursed. Keep your eyes on them. Confront them. Treat them in Matthew chapter 13 or 18. Treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. Rebuke them. Mark them. Those are just some of the biblical aspects of how we are to treat false teachers. Sometimes it's better just to simply avoid them and embrace the truth. By the way, how many of you ever gotten into an argument and lost after the first phrase? How many understand what I'm talking about? Sometimes it's best just to, okay, I hear you, now I'm going to go back and read it and study it, and then I'll come back and we'll discuss it. Amen? Don't let emotions get involved in that. Let the text deal with those problems. 
Sometimes it is better to simply avoid them and embrace the truth. And that's exactly what he's finishing up with in Romans chapter 16. So in essence, he started out in 15 saying, this is what a false teacher is, and you've got to rebuke them or get rid of them. Stay away from them. Avoid them. And, and don't talk to them. Keep your eye on them. And, and be very weary of them. And then the rest of the passages, I t- gave you the other things that we were to do to them. But the text then says immediately, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. One of the greatest ways to confront a false teacher is just to be faithfully obedient to the Word of God. If you are faithfully obedient to the Word of God, what will a false teacher be to you? A nothing. Amen. They're nothing. They're nothing. They don't have the truth. They don't understand the truth. They, don't have, they have not studied the truth. It's all about them. And that's why Paul says in this text, the report of your obedience has reached to all. Praise God for your obedience. Because in your obedience, what will happen? And he goes on, therefore I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent of what is evil. Don't worry about those guys. Just be in the text. That's where the rejoicing is. The Bible says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. In essence, saturate yourself in the Word and obey it. The best protection against false teachers is the Word of God. Amen. But it's not enough simply to know the Word, but live what is known. The only motivation to obey the Word that truly lasts is loving God. I pray that you are in the Word of God daily. I pray that you study the Word of God. But folks, don't let that just sit in your cerebral vortex. Let it enter your feet. Amen. Let it enter your hands, your eyes, your ears, your mouth. Live what you learn. Obey the Word. And all of that is because why? I I can sit here and try to manipulate you by being weird about stuff and making you get excited about something emotional. That all is worthless. If you do not love the Lord, then your motivation is to obey Him will fall flat. And it will be worthless. If one truly loves God, they will not only study and know the text, but they will obey the text with complete abandon. Let me tell you a story about a man named Peter. How many remember Peter? Peter was fishing. That was his life. That was his livelihood. He owned a boat. He owned nets. Not that they were ever full, but he owned them. And we remember the story. Jesus Christ came and he started preaching. He started preaching next to the Sea of Galilee where Peter's boat was sitting and his, all his regalia was there that he used to catch these fish. His whole business was there. Jesus, after his preaching, said this, Follow me. Do what Peter did? Oh, hold it. I, I, I've got investments here. 
I got this boat. I got all these, these nets. And I got all these employees. What am I supposed to do? Did he say any of that? The Bible said he dropped everything and he followed Christ. Is that abandonment or what? That's what Jesus did. Or that's what Peter did. Complete abandoned. He followed Jesus Christ. He embraced Christ's righteousness and lived life accordingly. Paul began this letter the same way he ended it. The Bible says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Romans chapter 1. And now we find the same thing in Romans chapter 16. Let me ask you, if someone were to write a letter to you, would they say, we praise the Lord for Northland's abandonment to the cause of Christ. No matter where they're at, they're serving God. All their life is sacred because they love the Lord. And we praise God for that testimony that goes throughout the whole state of Minnesota. That's what is being talked about here with the Church of Rome. This church was known for obeying the Word. And Paul was rejoicing over them. Do you remember what Paul said about people that he had led to the Lord and people that uh, uh, he had ministered to? I have no greater joy. How many remember that text? I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. Church is no match for Satan apart from the Word of God. You're not going to win a debate apart from the Word of God. Amen. Paul makes that clear when he says, but I want you to be wise in what I am rejoicing over you. I want, to be wi- I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent to in what is evil. I want you to be wise in what is good. Innocent in what is evil. Jesus expects His people to be in the world, to serve, to love, and witness to the unsaved as we are with them. It's a dangerous place. Why? Because the lion is walking around seeking whom He will devour. Jesus is fully aware of this, yet chooses to leave us here to fulfill our responsibilities as ambassadors of Christ. Amen. Jesus knows that the world is a dangerous place. But desires us to image Him in a great way. Bible says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of what? Wolves. Therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Every day and seemingly every hour, sin is appealing and our weaknesses is such times is exasperated by the flesh. This struggle will be a reality until Christ takes us home to be with Himself. There's not a person in here who is not exasperated with this fleshly body that continues to desire to sin. Is that not true? Paul dealt with this earlier in the letter when he said in Romans chapter 12, Abhor that which is evil. 
cling to that which is good. You see, the battle is for the mind. The battle is for the mind. Why is it that many Christians have a secular worldview? We're just like the world. Why is it that many Christians have a warped theology? Why do Christians have a problem with pornography? Why do Christians constantly and consistently divorce one another? Why do Christians swear and tell dirty jokes and fail to image Christ in a lost and dying world? I can tell you, it's not because you read your Bible too much. That's not the reason. None of that is, none of that is advocated in God's Word. Remember the text says, finally brethren, Paul admonishes believers in Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good report, if there is any excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Then why is it we have an epidemic of pornography within Christian men? Why? We're not in the Word. We're not in the Word. This is why the text claims that Christians are to be innocent in what is evil. Folks, it's not hard to find evil in this world. This is why we have to understand that we are saturated if we are saturated in the Word, if we are saturated in the Word and oblivious to what is on TV, to what is on Facebook, or wherever the evil is being thrown in front of our face, how do we know about pornography? How do we know about which cuss words are the better ones today? The jokes that are here and the like. How do we know that? That stuff has come in somehow, and it's not from Scripture. At one time, we bristled at such sins, did we not? Little by little, we become ambivalent to them, and eventually we enjoy them. Let me ask you, if Scripture was all the media we devoured, is it not true that good is all that we would know and live? The next phrase should bring us great joy. But before we go there, let me explain what this phrase focuses on. For those who turn away from false teachers and who are wise in what is good and innocent in what is, e in what is evil, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under their feet. In other words, God will fight for you. How many are tired of the nonsense of this world? Listen, it's not your job to fix it. It's His. How many understand that? It's God's job to fix this. There are to be Christians living their godly, sanctified life, rubbing shoulders with the world. That is our responsibility. But God does the heavy lifting. Amen? 
God does the heaven lifting. This, this is such a, I love this part of the text. And this is where we're going we're to spend a lot of time here. The Bible says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and basically innocent, but not understanding all the evil. Who cares? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you realize what that's saying? So, Mrs. Graff and I have just spent months submerged in hundreds of books. Matter of fact, I'll just give you a little input. My wife was writing out the bibliography and she found that we had at least mentioned or had read a little part of or all of it of all books that started with the letter A all the way to Z except for one letter. It was Q. Didn't have, how many understand what I'm saying? The bibliography is written out in alphabetical order. And we have 20 pages of books. And there's probably 40 books on each page. Now how many understand there's like 800 books there? We didn't have a Q book. So, Mrs. Graff goes in there and finds Dan Quayle. <laughs> Just to make sure we got them all. <laughs> Not that we had to or anybody, just. But the reality is this. The research that we did, we found that there were people who really believe. I mean, the, the majority of writers on the theology of vocation. Matter of fact, I would, I would dare say all of the writers on the theology of vocation are first of all, post-millennialists. Second of all, most of them are neo-Calvinists. Now those are really big words. How many do not know what I'm talking about? I left the space. Here we go. Here's the reality. A post-millennialist believes that it is his job to usher in the millennial kingdom. In other words, He's in charge of bringing in the millennial kingdom. They do that by this. They say, number one, our job is to redeem culture. Now let me ask you, which one of you can redeem the culture today? Let me ask you this. Is our culture beyond redeemability? All right, some say yes, some say no. Listen, Christ can do anything. I will tell you this. This culture is beyond us redeeming it. For sure. We aren't called to redeem culture. We are not called to save somebody's soul. That's God's job. Amen? No, we are called to be witnesses for Him. We're called to be the rubbing shoulders of the world in a positive way. Amen. But we don't redeem culture. That's God's job. And it's not our job to crush Satan under our feet. That's God's job. How do you know that? How do I know the Bible? 
tells me so. Remember that? Do you know that song? How many know that song? Don't worry about tomorrow, just be real good today. The Lord is right beside you, He'll guide you all the way. How many have heard that? All right. It's a good song. Bad singer. Good song. <laughs> the reality is, God does the justifying. It's God who does the saving. It's God who does the redeeming. No one has the power to do that apart from God. He alone is worthy. Amen. Matter of fact, this song, He is worthy. What is that talking about? It's talking about the book of Revelation. Who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll and throw damnation on the earth? That's what it's talking about. God alone, Christ alone, is the only one that can. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the problem is, many of these post-millennialists and all, all the most-millennialists, all-millennialists, believe that God has already crushed it under His feet. The problem is, the Bible doesn't say that. That's a problem. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. And I will put enmity. Where does that come from? Where does that phrase come from? Does it remember? Genesis, very good. It comes from Genesis. And the Bible says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. Listen, he shall bruise you on the heel is talking about Satan bruising Christ's heel. When did that happen? On the cross. Unfortunately, there are many that believe that God crushed him on the head during his resurrection. Scripture does not bear that out. Matter of fact, one of these guys, I think his name is Wolf or Newbegin, that we just, read, we just read, says, we're not sure when it happened, but crushed has, God has, Christ has crushed Satan. Either at the resurrection, listen to this, or when the church became the state in 350 A.D. I will give you one word, and I'll give it to you often. False, 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 false. Why? The Bible does not say that. And today I'm going to show you what the Bible says about crushing Satan. Is, is Satan, according to this text, does it look like Satan is about? Is he still alive? Yes, because the text says soon, right? It says soon. Well, let's look into this because this is very important. The Latin Vulgate, unfortunately, how many know what the Latin Vulgate is? That is when the Hebrew was translated into Latin, they unfortunately had some mistakes. Anytime people get involved in stuff, mistakes happen. The Latin Vulgate says that Mary will crush Satan's head. That's what it says in the Latin Vulgate. Catholics, now even though the text says that in their Latin Vulgate, it puts a feminine gender to the term he and says she, right? You can't have a feminine he, right? Okay. You've been watching too much news. <laughs> See? <laughs> but the point is, 
The he is correct. The Latin Vulgate says she, yet Catholics today now say the devil's successful temptation of Adam and Eve into original sin brought suffering and death into the world. Amen? They're absolutely right in that. Amen and amen. After describing the ensuing afflictions, God promises a redeemer. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Obviously in Genesis 3.15, they're talking to Satan as the you. The woman, according to Catholic theology, the woman kills the serpent through her seed. That's fair, but it's God who crushes Satan. It's said many, many times. He is the seed. Specifically, who is the seed of woman? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is. The seed is Jesus Christ. How they jump from Christ to Mary is unfortunate. True? For the text clearly expresses differently. Regardless, everyone agrees that Jesus will crush Satan's head. The question is, when will that happen? And let me ask you, how many are excited when that will happen? How many want the devil's head crushed? Five of you. Of course we do. Of course we do. Everyone agrees that Jesus will crush Satan's head. The question is, when will this happen? And has it happened? The text at hand clearly states that the crushing of Satan has not happened yet at the time of Paul's writing. True? Because it says, look at the word soon. So it hadn't happened yet. Some believe Jesus crushed His head at His resurrection. Some believe Jesus will crush His head at the second coming. Some believe Jesus will crush Satan's head at the end of the millennium. First, so which one is it? Where are we at? Every Christian wants Satan's head totally defeated forever. Amen. When will this happen? First of all, we need to understand that to crush his head means must be understood as this is a death blow. Got it? It's not just a, a prick. It's a death blow. Nothing survives with a crushed head. Now, even chickens survive a little bit with the head gone off, but they have no idea what they're doing. That's why I encourage you to get the cones of death from Mr. Gaiman. They will not be flopping around. They will remain in that cone. Regardless, Jesus Christ will literally crush the head of Satan and He will be gone for eternity. When? Nothing survives with a crushed head if Romans was written approximately 25 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it is impossible for Jesus to have crushed Satan's head with His resurrection. Amen. That's impossible. Why? Our text, the soon, 
He will crush his head in 1620. Very clear. The Bible then says not only that, but your adversary. So here, here's what we got. When will Christ, Romans 16.20. Soon he's going to do this. How about other verses? How about 1 Peter 5.8? 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If he was crushed at the resurrection, he would not be prowling like a roaring lion when written in 1 Peter. Right? What about James chapter 4, verse 7? Submit your ther therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, if he's crushed, then how in the world do you resist him? If he was crushed at the resurrection, you would not need to resist. Amen. First, so we have 1 Peter 5.8. We have James 4.7. There's more. And these are just some of them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Well, if he's crushed, how in the world can you give him an opportunity? If he was crushed at the resurrection, this would not be a reality. There's more. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you're at Romans 12, or Revelation chapter 12. We're going to read this together because this is so important. Everybody would agree. I don't care if you're post, mid, pre, millennial. It doesn't matter. Revelation is discussing eschatology. Amen? A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on the head, of the head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain and gave birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold... <laughs> <coughs> and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. His, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her. And she gave birth to a son, a man-child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there should be nourishment for 1,262 days. Why is... Listen. When the Bible gives numbers... You should pay attention to those numbers. This is specific to the days. Why? Well, that's why we believe in the tribulation. Amen. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not, and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who is this great dragon that was thrown down? And why was he in heaven? The serpent of the old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, has 
he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. I will tell you this. Anybody that says the devil made me do it and that you think the devil's right here working on you, you don't have a clue about theology. Where is Satan? He's in heaven. What is he doing? Let me remind you of a man named Job. What did God do? Hey, he's talking to Satan. God is talking to Satan some, you can go ahead and affect him. And you can do this, 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 but that's too far. Satan is accusing us in heaven with Christ. But guess what? We are worthy only because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the blood of Christ covers us all. And therefore, we will stand in victory with Him. Amen. But Satan's sitting there. Hey, look at Billy Bob. Or Billy Joe. Or Sister Susan. I don't know. None of those names are here, so we can use them, right? Look at him. Look at him. Jesus, or God saying, under the blood, under the blood, under the blood. There is no accusation that will stick with a truly born again person. Amen? But he's sitting there accusing. Let's keep reading. This is fun, right? The serpent old who is called devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down on the earth and His angels were thrown down with Him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Okay, now we find, hold it. Let me ask you, is the book of Revelation dealing with eschatology? That's the doctrine of end times. Yes or no? Absolutely. Is the devil still alive in the eschaton? Absolutely. Look at the word. You have the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a what? Short time. We know that in the future the devil's still alive. He hasn't been crushed. He's still alive. If Satan's head was crushed at the resurrection, he would not be around during the tribulation. If Satan's head was crushed when the Pope became the Pope of the church in Rome, then, he, then the Bible's wrong. Just like Job and Peter, the church is being accused by Satan because Satan's head has not been crushed and he is in the heavenlies Causing mischief. He has not been crushed yet. The resurrection certainly put a blow to Satan's plan, but as Scripture expresses, it is not the crushing blow to Satan's head that has been, this is not the crushing blow to Satan's head that has been promised. So when does the crushing happen? Flip over a few pages to Revelation chapter 20. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss. And a great chain was in his hand. So what do we have here? We have an angel. We have keys to an abyss. And we have a great chain. What does he do with that? What does the angel do with that? And he laid hold of the dragon. We already know who that is, right? If not, let's explain it again. As the text says, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. We know exactly who this is. There's no question about it. And bound him for a thousand years. So what did he do? He bound him up, the angel did. And what did he do then? And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Now listen, I have many post-millennial and amillennial friends, but I absolutely, positively disagree with them on this point. Usually, covenant theologians use their theology and sift the Bible through it. Because we just read that the Satan will be what? What does it say? He'll be bound. He'll be thrown in the abyss. The door will be shut. Right? And he will not be able to do what? He will not be able to deceive the nations. Here's how they explain that verse. Well, Satan was given a long chain. How can you get that out of that verse? It's easy. This is the theology. This is what I believe. I will make the text say what I want it to say. That is the only way it comes up. And I'll tell you this, it's the same way with baptism. If you have not read Peter Gaiman's, Dr. Peter Gaiman's, now he's the one you should be calling doctor, okay? You need to read Peter Gaiman's book on baptism. Folks, we live in the infant baptism world. We do. We live in that world. You need to know a biblical answer to it. Peter fleshes it out perfectly for you. But he also expresses very clearly, listen, the only reason there's infant baptism is they had this theological idea and they have pushed it into the text. The text does not reveal it. It's not there. The only way it's there is if they make it there. Just like this. How in the world can you say Satan's around tempting people because he has a long chain when the text absolutely debunks every aspect of that? How can that be? Some people believe that the crushing will come with the second coming of Christ. Scripture does not support that does not support that at all. Jesus comes down, Matthew 24, Matthew 25. What does He do? He separates the good from the evil. He throws all the evil in the abyss. He sets up His kingdom. He rules with a rod of iron. 
And what happens is Revelation chapter 20. Satan is bound for that time. Let's keep reading and find out when Christ... How many want to know when Christ is going to crush Satan's head? <clears throat> he threw him... I'll read verse 3 again because that is so powerful. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that, the, that he would not deceive the nations any longer until... until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Is it black and white that during much of the millennial kingdom, Satan will not be a factor? Amen! Why? Because he's bound, he's in the abyss, the door is shut, and it's sealed. There's no long chain! does not exist. What happens? He's going to be released. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given. I'm in verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast of His image. And had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. How long Satan bound for? Verse 2, thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, a second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. How long? How many would say, this text is very clear. Christ reigns for a thousand years while Satan is bound, thrown in the abyss, shut the door, sealed it, chained, can't do anything. There is no long chain. I, I hope you're getting that part. Because it's ridiculous. Who is reigning for that thousand years? according to the text, is Jesus Christ. How many, can't you see? It's, it's the church that's reigning for a thousand years. The church is the one that makes all things right. The church redeems the people. The church does it. Is that what the text says? It's Christ. When the thousand years are completed, follow with me please. Satan will be released from his prison. Prison is not the long... Come on, I don't want to say it again. I want you to say it. Chain, thank you. 
and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And the number of them will be like the sand of the shore. And they came up on the broad plain and on the earth and surrounded the camps of of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It didn't end too well. Oh, look. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are also, and they will be tormented day and night. How long? And forever and ever. How many know when, the, when Satan will be crushed his head? Right there. Right there. Some believe that the crushing will come a second coming. Not true. Scripture does not support this theory. At the end of the, each, at the, end of the millennium, when Satan will be released, then comes the end, the text says. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. If Scripture is correct, The final crushing blow to Satan is when he is thrown into the lake of fire eternally. This is a problem for covenant theologians. They have to twist Scripture and make it say what it does not say if it's understood normally. Satan is still around today. Satan will be alive and in his glory during the tribulation. Satan will be bound and locked in a pit guarded by an angel during much of the millennial kingdom, a thousand years. Satan will be utterly crushed after he loses and Christ throws him into the eternal lake of fire. Jesus is proclaiming through the writing of Paul that Satan soon, how many want soon to be now? (laughs) Why does he say soon? How many... See, that's kind of weird. Why soon? How many, ask, how many understand the question? Why soon? Why does our text say soon? God is promising a freedom from Satan that the world has never seen since early in the garden. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This life is a battle. Amen? But it's also a vapor. Serve others. Love your neighbors. And proclaim the gospel. Soon those opportunities will vanish. We only have a short time here. By the way, whose job is it to crush Satan? According to the text we just read, the God of peace crushes Satan. The God of peace is spoken of in relation to his permanent victory over Satan and his minions. Now the term soon must be explained, as I said before. Some understandably understand the term soon to, be, to mean w- within a short period of time. Is that a normal language, yes or no? Yes, it is. So that's the English word that was used Can we rely on that English word to give us 
everything about that word when it was used back then? Yes or no? We cannot. So how else could soon be explained? We all want to see Christ come soon. We all want to see Christ come soon, but there is so much work to be done until He comes. Amen? He has placed us here to serve, to love, and proclaim the Gospel to the lost and dying world. We must not and cannot sit on our laurels, laurels waiting for His coming. That is not our job. We must be actively serving Him in anticipation of His coming. So, what does the phrase soon mean? If you would look into a Greek lexicon, you will find that the term soon that we have in English also has the meaning speedily, quickly. Matter of fact, instead of soon, as is found in this text, that same Greek word is found in Acts chapter 12, verse 7. It says this, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared. How many understand? It's not a moment of time. It's an action. Suddenly appeared and light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him saying, Get up quickly. Acts chapter 22 verse 18 And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So the term soon, that Greek word, often carries the secondary context of unexpectedly. The closely related adverb is used three times in Revelation. So, so how many know that our words can be used as a verb or a noun depending on the context? Are there English words like that? There are Greek words like that also, and there's a Greek, this Greek word for soon, is rendered three times in Revelation, and it, all three times it's coming quickly. Coming quickly, it means a blink of an eye does we get that. It's that how He's coming, not when He's coming. Does that make sense? The term soon may be referring to the manner of His coming, not necessarily to the time of His coming is encouraging that the Lord will crush Satan under your feet. The feet of God's people. As they join Christ in His triumph over Satan. Now, if you'll bear with me, I want to think about this in my mind, how it might play out in the Millennial Kingdom. Where Jesus releases Satan, right? Says it, at the end of the thousand years. And Satan gathers all the wicked people from all around the world to go against the godly people. Could you imagine all these Christians, Jewish, Gentile Christians standing in Jerusalem? We'll just put it there for a second. Alright, let's go get him. And they watch who? God consume them all with fire. Can you? Woo! Right? I didn't want to go there with the spear. I could not, I can't do anything against him in my own power. 
It's God who wins my battles. Be vigilant. Be strong. Be humble. And be encouraged. God gets the victory. He has already won. In the meantime, in the next phrase of the text, we will learn that God's grace will sustain and encourage until His promise perfectly is realized. Look what it says. In the meantime, okay, I put that in. That would be parentheses, right? In the meantime, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Isn't it great for God's grace? How many love God's grace? The grace of our Lord be with you. I know the Apostle says in effect that even with your faithful obedience, you need God's continual grace to direct and strengthen you. Listen, my God raised a man from the dead. My God threw over the money changers. I love that part. My God created this world and all that is in it in seven, six days. My God healed the leper, healed the lame. What has that God done? He brought us wokeness. He brought us LGBTQ, RST. I, I don't know. I don't even know all the letters anymore. He has brought us pain, suffering, sickness. And that is the world's God. Are we surprised the world's God is in charge today? What's the answer? The answer is we need to be in the world and not of it. We need to serve and love them. Care for them. Why? They need Jesus just like you needed Jesus. Because we need His grace. We need God's continuing grace to direct and strengthen us. We need His wisdom to give us wisdom to recognize false teachers. We need grace to give you comfort and patience when you are attacked by Satan's emissaries while he is still in power on this world. Why? He still has not been crushed yet. Amen? Someday. But until that time, may the grace of God empower you to live a godly Christian life, imaging Him in all aspects of life, not just here in church. Amen? To God be the glory. Great things He has and greater things He will do. To God be the glory. Mr. Gaming can close this word of prayer, please. After we close our service, I hope you're planning on joining the church family here for our end of the month picnic over at La Prairie City Park, also known as Ryan Park. If you haven't been there, just go out to La Prairie Avenue and take a right and Oh, maybe about a mile or so down the road, watch for the signs for uh, City Hall. And the park is right there. And this will also be a time to 
celebrate with Pastor Graf his accomplishment. So please stand, if you will. I'll dismiss us in prayer. And then uh, oh, within a half hour, 45 minutes, we will commence with our picnic. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for being clear about when Satan's head will be crushed, what a glorious day that will be. And thank you for the sustaining power of your peace being with us until that time. Lord, I pray that we would live for you every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen.